This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis, a podcast on the New Books Network. And my name is Jordan, your host for today. And I'm delighted to be joined by Derek Hook, a regular on our podcast, and Sheldon George. We're going to be speaking about their edited collection, Lacan and Race, Racism, Identity, and Psychoanalytic Theory, which just came out with uh, Rutledge. So before we get started... I'll just introduce our two guests. Sheldon George is professor of English and chair of the English department at Simmons University in Boston, Massachusetts. He is a scholar of Lacanian psychoanalytic theory and of American and African-American literature and culture. He's the author of Trauma and Race, a Lacanian study of African-American racial identity, which was published in 2016 to great acclaim. Uh, co-editor with Jean Wyatt of Reading Contemporary Black, British, and African-American Women Writers that was published in 2020, um, and co-editor with Derek Hook of the book we're going to speak about today. And Derek, in addition to editing this book with Sheldon George, he is the author of Six Moments in Lacan, published in 2017, Post-Apartheid Conditions, published in 2014, and A Critical Psychology of the Postcolonial, published in 2011. Derek is an associate professor at Duquesne University, where he also works as a clinical supervisor, and he is the co-editor of the three-volume commentary series, Reading Lacan's Ecree, along with Steen Van Hula and Callum Neal, um, and a co-editor along with Callum Neal of the Palgrave Lacan series. So that's a series that's been publishing a a number of uh, books um, about Lacan uh, in different kind of registers. Uh, Derek maintains a YouTube channel with many lectures and interviews on topics pertaining to Lacanian psychoanalysis. So uh, Derek and Sheldon, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us, Jordan. Yay, Jordan, thanks. (laughs) Um, It's really a pleasure to have you back here. Um, So let's kick off by uh, hearing a bit about how this book came into fruition. Um, what was the idea behind it? Um, and how did you go about choosing the people who contributed to it? Um, so Derek, if you want to start perhaps, and then Sheldon, uh, you can uh, follow up. Sure. Um, I'm going to give uh, Sheldon the lion's share of credit for this one because um, you know he had been working in the area and we'd seen each other at a bunch of conferences. And I think both of us were struck by the, hey, that guy's doing a similar thing to what I'm doing. Um, But what I think also was really important was um, Sheldon is very uh, generous as a colleague. And I think both from conferences and a variety of other uh, initiatives, like a special journal of psychoanalysis, culture and society, 
um, Sheldon and maybe a little bit with me have started building a bit of a community. And um, so we had a series of colleagues who contributed to a special issue that we did trying to investigate the intersection of Lacanian theory and thought and contemporary questions of race and racism. And, and that was the first stepping stone to, towards putting the book together. And in a way, the book is still, um, I mean, the book is published, but it's, it's kind of still in motion in as much as we've started a series of dialogues with, with colleagues who've contributed to the book. And um, uh, that, that's, that's, that's been really, really very interesting and very helpful because I think we're starting to get a sense of some of the key themes that are in the book, which we'll move on to speak about, but also how they're opening up to further perspectives and questions and discussions. But let me pass over to, to Sheldon. Yeah, so as Derek said, both of us were working in the area separately and um, I, we didn't really know each other's work. Um, I think around 2014 or so, um, 2014 or so, Derek was working on the apartheid project and I was doing a special issue of psychoanalysis, culture and society. And um, yeah, it, it, it was an issue that focused on Lacanian theory and race. And everyone kept on saying to me, um, you know, Derek Hook is the guy who should be reviewing your articles, your submissions for the special issue. And, you know, I was like, who's this Derek Hook guy? And why is everyone sending me to him? Um, yeah, but they were correct. Um, Derek was the person to go to. And eventually, as Derek said, we met at conferences and we started a second special issue that um, ended up bringing in people like um, um, Patricia Garavici and um, Michelle uh, Stevens, who became contributors to this collection. And you know, I, I think part of what we were trying to do with the collection was change the current discussion on race. Um, I think most, most engagements with race tend to focus on issues of racism. And there's a lot of language in that discussion that sounds psychoanalytic. Mm. So people will talk about things like unconscious bias. And we have, um, we have a chapter in the collection, the very first chapter um, is by Todd McGowan, where McGowan makes the point that when they talk about unconscious bias, they're not talking about the Freudian unconscious. Um, they, they are basically talking about a, a sort of conscious unconscious. The sense is that um, the problem with unconscious bias is that um, there is something that people are doing that they don't know that they're doing and they can learn to um, avert their biases. Um, but what's missing from that is the unconscious component, the unknown component of our desires, our drives, um, our jouissance. So what we do in the book is we move from not just a discussion of racism, but also a discussion of things like racial identification. The book itself is um, divided into four sections. The first section is racism, but there's also a section that's focused on racial identification, which is more, more of a psychic process, um, and also a section on the clinic. Um, 
and then finally a section that investigates the ways that the the subject can be read as a subject of race and i think in that culminating section especially what we're trying to do is think about how we can both rethink um, current concepts of race and racism but also how those concepts can help us to rethink Lacanian theory. So I think the larger goal of the text is to bring race to Lacanian theory, which you know traditionally hasn't deeply engaged Lacanian theory, but also to bring the tools of Lacanian theory to the study of race and take that study in new directions. Mm. That's fantastic. A uh, really helpful kind of summary of the of the main aims of the book. And actually, it was around this idea of unconscious bias that I had um, kind of thought about my first question, which is, um, so you spoke about uh, how how Todd McGowan in the book addresses this idea that the unconscious bias that's referred to in kind of popular anti-racist discourse isn't very closely related to the Freudian unconscious. Um, but one of the other criticisms that we sometimes hear around terms like unconscious bias is that it's a kind of individualizing kind of psychological account of racism, which sometimes involves the kind of the white subject constantly questioning their own privilege and their, you know, quote unquote, unconscious biases. So how does the Lacanian approach um, that you're foregrounding in this book um, respond to this kind of psychological uh, formulation of racism? So one of the ways that I think we see that is in the, um, the chapter by E. Trebrolu, which is a chapter that's focused on um, white nationalist manifestos. And part of what Trebrolu argues there is that the typical move in thinking about the violence of the white nationalists is to think in terms of a, a sort of... Um, uh, not fully developed ego sense of self, right? So, so a sort of egoic focus, the sense is that this is someone who wasn't cared for as a child, or this is someone who, um, who has problematic family relations and they're reaching out for attention. And so, so the sense is that what's needed is that um, they need to develop a stronger um, uh, uh, self-awareness and um, a, a stronger sense of self-worth. And what gets lost in that discussion is the actual racism of their actions. So what Trevalu tries to do is he brings in um, Lacan's Rome discourse in which Lacan talks about the formation of identity um, as something that happens retroactively um, so in the Rome discourse, Lacan talks about the ways that we sort of create, um, create a narrative of who we will become once we have uh, conducted a certain act. So in the case of, of the white nationalist killer, the sense is that I become this white person, this, this epitome of whiteness through this act. And the manifesto tells the story of the individual's life 
as though it will be completed retroactively once the act has been constructed. So there's, there's a model of um, identification at work there. There's a process of constructing a sense of self that is missed if we only focus on um, a, a sort of um, psychological egoic uh, understanding of these actions. Mm, that's very helpful. Derek, did, did you want to add anything? Yeah, maybe just a, a brief comment that, um, uh, you know, Lacanian theory is, is actually pretty antagonistic to a series of psychological moves that we often see in contemporary thoughts and, and ideas and discourses on racism. And, um, you know, Sheldon has said that very well. Um, but, you know, looking through some of the literature, which we did when we put together the introduction, I mean, you know, one still finds a kind of prevalence of a, of a, a Kleinian vocabulary, object relations vocabulary in terms of projective identification, all of these things, which is fine. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not rejecting that. But in a way, the project, I think, of, of Lacanian social theory is always cautious not to rely only upon notions of projection, of, of a psychological vernacular, you could say, and tries also to give us, and I think succeeds in giving us concepts that exist at this trans-individual, this, this space between singular subjects and, 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 and the big other, you know. So when one talks about social fantasies, when one talks about arrangements of jouissance in Lacanian theory, one is keeping an ear to the ground of how these things might manifest in the singular speech of subjects within a clinic, but one is also absolutely aware of the domain of the big other, which by definition is trans-subjective, right? And so, um, you know, the one chapter where I try to broach these issues is by asking the question of how do we use the concept of the big other within thinking about racism? And is, for example, to do a little bit of historically grounded um, analysis, was the big other of apartheid South Africa racist? And I suppose the answer to that is a resounding yes. Um, and of course, we might reflect back in terms of contemporary developments in the United States, Black Lives Matter, and say, well, the reason perhaps there is a movement, there's many reasons, but for there is Black Lives Matter is presumably because maybe the big other of the, the North American context is not yet convinced of that, right? So um, just to, to cut a long story short, what we're saying is that certain uh, Lacanian concepts, certainly when we talk about signifiers, when we talk about the big other, when we talk about arrangements of jouissance, are by definition not simply reducible to the singular psychological dynamics of projection and so on and so forth. They exist precisely within that space of, of signifying content within the transubjective, within how the subject is constantly utilizing uh, these signifiers, these ideas to make sense and, and to engender fantasies and that stuff. And this is, the, for me, one of the great attractions of Lacanian theory. It constantly prevents us resorting to a merely intrapsychic dynamics. It simply does not allow you to do that. The concepts are always putting the subject uh, into, into, into contact with the social order, um, signifiers, social values, mm. so on and so forth. Mm. Um, maybe I'll follow up with that, Derek, by asking you a bit about um, one of your contributions to the book, uh, because you look at these um, somewhat, you know, universalistic Lacanian concepts like the big other and jouissance, and your chapter is concerned with, I think, trying to avoid 
a, a kind of one size fits all approach, as you call it, um, to, uh, you know, looking at all instances of historical racism in the same way, because perhaps some deployment of Lacanian concepts might allow us to do that. So you're trying to kind of navigate this, how do we use these very broad concepts in historical situations? Could you explain a bit more how, how you do that? And um, I suppose, what yeah what what you think are the 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 dangers as well as the promises of using um lacanian concepts that that are quite broad like the big other so you know we have a tension um because on the one hand we have um a whole stream um a very productive uh, fertile terrain of concepts that lacanian psychoanalysis gives us uh, I was going to mention this earlier actually when you were talking about the inspiration for the book and how Sheldon and I kind of work together um, it's really helpful just to, to address that point to, to work as a team um, and as quite a broad team because there's so many periods in, in Lacan scholarship that it's difficult to have a handle on all of that stuff. So I'm always thankful that when you know we do talk, Sheldon and I, because you know he can speak about drive in terms of North American context of racism in a way that I perhaps couldn't, right? Both because of this social historical contextualization and the research that's required for the work he's done. Uh, and just in, in terms of the period of Lacan that he is most proficient at, which is like, I'm better at early Lacan. So just to make that comment, but I think that the tension here is on the one hand to appreciate what Lacanian psychoanalytic theory gives us. And one of the things that psychoanalytic theory will always give us is a series of concepts which complicate the critical historicist agenda. By which I mean, once one follows notions of the temporality of the unconscious, one gets a sense that for social milieus, periods, uh, cultural context, much like the context of the own individual's historical uh, unconscious, that it's not simply a chronological progressive development of how things happen, right? And we know that in racism just because we see these moments where suddenly we're in, in 2021 and, and we see a piece of racism that seems to have come from the 1960s or something like that. So on the one hand, psychoanalysis would problematize simply a kind of uh, historicist Foucauldian attempt to, to pinpoint a genealogy of certain things while still being able to learn from that. Just because we know the temporality of the unconscious, uh, the temporality of the drive is not merely historical. So that's our first point. And I think psychoanalysis is tremendously helpful in thinking about Nachtraklikates, deferred action, uh, the future interior, all of these notions types of time signatures that we could take to thinking about certain uh, social formations, social political formations, precisely such as that of anti-Blackness, which seems to have this trans-historical tenacity, which just persists and persists and persists. Yeah. On the other hand, and here's the balancing act, I think it is important in, in, in conversations Sheldon and I have had, and certainly in contributions to the book, it is also important to, to, to measure and counterbalance merely uh, a Lacanian or psychoanalytic um, engagement by trying to, to locate it within precise historical coordinates. And that takes kind of a, a, an ambidextrous type of criticality because you know it's quite hard just to get a good proficiency in the Lacanian stuff. And, and then on top of that, to have the skills to, to locate what one's talking about in precise historical context. And, and that's difficult. So as much as I love the work of Slavoj Žižek and I borrow a lot from it and I learn a lot from it, I mean, he's more interested in a philosophical project. 
So time and time again, he'll throw out the theft of enjoyment thesis, and it's you know it's always enlightening to see how he does it. He gives great examples, but it seems to me it, it, it doesn't. He never really does it in a way which which is historically contextualized, developed, and sustained. And I think that's part of what I've tried to do a little bit on on the one chapter on on, on apartheid South Africa, um, and it's also part of my my supportive, encouraging, and hopefully pro proactive critique of not just saying theft of enjoyment is a one-size-fits-all formula, which we, we can simply move to one historical and uh, geographical context to another. You can do that in a kind of uh, um, way which might engender the asking of certain questions, the prioritization of certain areas of analytical focus. So where there's jouissance, one might find superego, for example. Where there's jouissance, presumably we'll find drive. Where there's jouissance, we'll find uh, formations of fantasy, but I think it's almost as if it needs to be tailored, it needs to be tinkered with for each different historical localization. And maybe just to invite Sheldon also to comment, because um, one of the real achievements of trauma and race, his book prior to this book and his work in the book, is, is that he's very squarely focused on, on precise texts, um, historical contexts, which mean that it's not just a kind of um, loose application of theory to context. It's, it's precise, it's, it's rigorous. Yeah, Sheldon, it would be great to hear uh, your thoughts on what Derek was saying and also how, how trauma and race might have influenced some of your thinking in putting together this collection. So I think what I was interested in in trauma and race is thinking um, about a psychic reality that is um, indicative of subjectivity, but then gets expressed in a specific historical pattern. So jouissance to me is um, something that is cross-subjective, right? It, it's, it's, um, it's connected to an experience of lack that every subject has. But what I would suggest is that there are certain historical moments in which jouissance sort of gets structured, gets attached to a particular moment in time. So slavery, for example, is one of those moments where we see an upsurge of jouissance and where um, um, jouissance gets, gets expressed in a certain characteristic mode so that racism becomes a mode of enjoyment um, that gets structured within slavery. So how do we experience jouissance? Um, racism allows us one mode of, of experiencing jouissance, and that becomes a sort of dominant mode of, of experiencing jouissance. So there we have the psychic um, becoming uh, intermingled with the social. And that then gets repeated across history. So, so a Lacanian notion of repetition um, as a sort of expression of, um, of jouissance is what I'm interested in. Um, one of the ways that I talk about it in uh, the, the piece that I wrote for this collection is I talk about minstrelsy and um, Lacan's concept of hein animoration, which is connected to uh, this theft of enjoyment thesis. Um, 
I would describe Hein animation as, um, uh, you know, it, it comes from Freud's concept of ambivalence. It translates as love and hate. It's a coming together of love and hate. And I describe it as a hatred directed at the other who has the object that I love. And so there you get a coalescing of um, hatred, desire, and love for the object and for the other who has the object. So how does that play out um, in something like minstrelsy? What happens in American minstrelsy is that, you know, minstrelsy, I, I live and work in Boston, and Boston was one of the centers of minstrelsy. Minstrelsy was, was uh, you know, blackface minstrelsy where you have um, white men painting their face black and performing um, black dances. It was popular more so in the North than in the South. And it became a mode for Irish Americans especially to express a sort of hate-love relationship to African-Americans. Um, the, the Irish had lived among African-Americans in the same communities as African-Americans, and they were often associated with African-Americans. Um, there was a popular saying that if you turn an Irish man inside out, you find a nigger. And so the sense is that at the core of the Irish man, is a black man. And, you know, there, there were um, cartoons that would, um, you know, have images of a scale that would weigh a black man and an Irish man um, on two opposing sides of the scale. And both of them are drawn as, um, you know, simian type figures. They look like apes. And the scale is perfectly balanced. So they're the same. So part of what the Irish had to do was separate themselves from Blacks. And one of the ways that they did that was by taking on Blackness, painting their faces Black, and performing on stage in ways that presented Blacks as buffoons. But they were able to do these performances because of a sort of identification with Black culture. So there you have the love of Black culture that gets expressed as a, a sort of hateful or mocking performance of Blackness. And there, um, um, the performance is an articulation of a sort of jouissance that's associated with Blackness. Uh, blackness is often imagined as connected to some sort of enjoyment that the other does not have. And so here we have a situation where whiteness can um, have the fantasy object that blackness seems to embody, the sort of unrestrained enjoyment. Um, the savagery that is associated with Blackness can be performed on stage and can be embodied by a white figure, but yet still disowned as that's not me, that's, you know, that's the savage Black. I'm just pretending to be this figure. Mm. That's um, 
Yeah, really helpful. I think uh, you've both given such kind of uh, helpful ways of thinking um, productively about how the concept of jouissance can be mobilized in um, in thinking about uh, questions of race. Um, but it, I suppose I would be remiss not to mention at this point for our more Lacanian listeners, um, I wonder if either of you are familiar with uh, the, a book by Darian Leader recently um, that's kind of criticizing the concept of jouissance more more from a clinical perspective, I think, than its than its use in social theory, um, but but a, a sort of criticism of the ways in which jouissance might be, um, I suppose, again, a kind of what Derek might call a one size fits all concept or kind of catch all for various different phenomena um, that uh, need to be actually differentiated. So uh, I wonder if either of you are familiar with this criticism and, and have any responses to it, um, possibly from the perspective of this book or otherwise? I'm familiar with the book um, and it, it's a really important uh, and rather critical <laughs> um, engagement with, with many of these themes. You know, so maybe just one comment is it, in some ways it, it's kind of surprising to see a book which is so robustly critical of a kind of mainstay of Lacanian language and conceptualization coming from the Lacanian. Um, but I think the book is, is really very important. And, I, and, and I'll just say a few words why, and, and I'll say why also I think it links to, to what, what we're trying to do. Um, one of uh, Darren Leader's arguments is that because the concept of jouissance has become such a routinely evoked and somewhat nebulous and somewhat um, blurry concept that it that it's come on to take almost a completely descriptive value rather than having a analytical precision um, and you know I, I think I've kind of come to a similar conclusion um, not through necessarily looking at um, clinical formulations but rather just in terms of, of racism so one critique of the the theft of uh, enjoyment idea within Lacanian theory which to reiterate remains productive remains important, but it's such a broad sketch, right? Like when we talk about enjoyment, do we mean the, the narcissistic, well, first off, do we mean the, the frisson of hate? Do we mean the, the uh, agitation, the, the surplus uh, uh, libidinal gratifications in hating? You know, so that would be the one way of thinking about what that is. But soon, if we look at the literature, we find that the word jouissance in racism means that but it also seems to apply to the libidinal properties, the libidinal treasures of the given uh, subject, racist subject who feels themselves um, vulnerable to and about to have something stolen. And it also sometimes seems to mean the attribution I make of the toxic enjoyment of what the racial other is doing, which in, in some very important analyses, Sheldon has linked to, to rap music in, in the United States. And, and just while I'm on that topic, Sheldon's argument is so important in trauma and race because he, he's saying that racism doesn't fundamentally pivot merely on uh, attributions of physical difference, which is a kind of an assumption in, in some theories of racism. But what seems to, to pivot, what seems to be an even more crucial element is that the other seems to have, possess some toxic enjoyment that they may be taking away from me and, and that, that is corrupting in some ways. 
Anyways, without getting too technical, I think it, um, Darren Leader's book is a, is a tremendously important critique because effectively what he's saying is, let's remember that Freud got very critical about how people were using libido in a very generalized way. You know, the whole history of, of Freud's um, critique of Jung, who suddenly wants libido to mean life force, not merely sexual energy, a whole series of things. And it becomes an undifferentiated concept which ceases to have explanatory validity and becomes more of a loose descriptive term. And I think he's right, you know, like I think in, in Lacanian circles, um, and, I, you know, I suppose I'm a Lacanian, so, you know, it is, it is an important critique that, 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 that we end up using it in a lazy way when, when, we're, when not to explain but to presume. And so my own sense is that certainly within the domain of racism and other, you know, Lacanian situations, maybe my, my critique wouldn't be quite as, as, as stringent as Darren Leader's. I think the concept is still invaluable. I suppose he does too, but it needs to be much more precise, much more qualified. There's multiple different facets of racist jubisance. Is it phallic? Um, does it entail a kind of uh, a sense of castrated enjoyment? You know, so like, I, I think the, the concept is definitely salvageable and absolutely necessary to a Lacanian agenda, but it just needs so much more precision and, and consideration in how it's mobilized. That's great. Um, I want to move, if we can, to thinking a bit about some of the political implications of this book. So um, I was thinking about how an, another kind of popular critique of this, uh, you know, of a psychological model of racism or the kind of unconscious racial bias concept um, is that sometimes it can be used at the expense of building multiracial solidarity in order to further some kind of anti-racist project, right? So I think um, it's been pointed out before that we're seeing this very strongly in the kind of corporate um, American embrace of a sort of superficial Black Lives Matter politics. Um, and the argument's been made that um, the widespread embrace of books like uh, White Fragility by Robin DiAngelo within um, not just ordinary people's bookshelves, but within even the halls of corporate power has something to do with the way that this model might be reducing uh, racism to an individual problem. Um, and so it prevents some kind of multiracial solidarity and it can uh, you know, obscure or even facilitate the role that capitalism and the 1% might play in, in, in a sort of divide and rule model um, that divides and rules workers along the lines of race. So um, that's a very lengthy way of sort of trying to pose to both of you the question of what do you think a Lacanian approach offers to thinking about a, a political anti-racist movement and forms of multiracial solidarity? And on this note, uh, one concern of mine is whether the Lacanian emphasis on difference, um, however that's conceived, might undermine um, attempts at kind of collective action, anti-racist collective action. Well, and that's a, a great question, uh, Shelton, and I've taken a, a bunch of questions about the book, and, and that is the most <laughs> difficult yet. Um, no, seriously. Perhaps so, I should have warned you in advance. <laughs> no, 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 it's, it's all good. It's all good. Um, and I think, it, I think it is an important question, but it's almost as if the question necessarily entails um, like a step back. And, and let me just say that, so in conference situations, when Sheldon and I have spoken about this, um, one question almost invariably comes up, like, so what, what, what should white people do or, or what do we need to do? Like, how do we, how do we make it better? Mm -hmm. And um, I think... In, in very different contexts, in, in, in very different situations, um, there's been a, a kind of moment without having to, you know, make eye contact with Sheldon or whatever, where we've had a similar kind of Lacanian response is that like, 
that knee-jerk reaction, the anxious attempt to now suddenly redress or, or make better, um, is part of the problem, actually. And um, so it, I think it would take a bit of a, a, a long preamble to think about how to adequately address your, your question. But one of the lessons for me, at least, from, from a Lacanian perspective, and maybe I'm talking more from the position, the standpoint of white subjectivity or something, is in a way not to rush to solve something just yet, maybe certainly as, as, as a white person, until, until something has, has kind of sunk in. And it's almost as if like the ingrained level of defensiveness, I mean, and we see this in the US today, you know, people think that teaching critical race theory is like somehow massively detrimental to the white psyche. And so I suppose the, the first step for me um, about thinking about where to go politically is, is, is just to realize, A, the degree of anxiety that gets um, uh, ignited in these kind of discussions, particularly, and uh, you know, I'm surprised by it, but it is definitely very much the case in, in, in much of the United States and elsewhere. The massive degrees of defensiveness, anxiety, aggression, um, antipathy, that come your way when when such things are mentioned and it's constantly a surprise to me you know like even broaching the, the topic of slavery gets gets people extremely angry and wanting to to say let's divide a line so in a way that's that's the first step i'm going to pass over to Sheldon. just one more comment though what, one idea both from from clinical psychoanalysis and 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 you know the canyon theory more generally is that that anxiety can be pervasive and it can spread and um, in another piece of work that I've done, which is on the topic of white anxiety, I suppose for me, a productive moment is, is for when that anxiety does emerge. Maybe that works better in the clinic. And, you know, I often use this quote, in a, it's a Bruce Fink quote where he says, well, effective clinical work without the prospect of anxiety, without felt anxiety is a, is a kind of misnomer. It's not going to happen. So the first step, I think, is to is to not do the white thing of trying to fix it or, you know, do my long confession, you know, of how racist I am or whatever. I mean, fine, that's fine if you want to do that. Um, but trying to jump in and fix is a kind of liberal white person's um, uh, forte. And, you know, from a South African context, I've also felt this. And, and you don't realize how much you are still impressing um, and extending the privileges of whiteness in doing that. And then to persist somehow in that degree of anxiety and maybe without getting overly romanticized about it, how to find a way of being punctured in that whiteness, how to find a way of, of, of that whiteness starting to shift. And, and just a little bit more, this paper that I'm referring to the white anxiety thing says something a little bit counterintuitive. And that is that in clinical work, Sometimes someone goes into a little bit of a whatever misogynist racist thing. And as clinicians, you know, it's like, yeah, okay, a little uncomfortable with this moment. Um, and most clinicians, I think, you know, I have a way of dealing with this, but I, I supervise trainee clinicians and, and, you know, many of them are very progressive and find it, find it very unnerving to be in those situations. And I'm not going to make any, you know, universal prescriptions, but sometimes oddly enough, depending on the situation, even when that stuff starts to happen, if one can facilitate more of those fantasies, which, you know, sometimes is a nerving situation, sometimes there's something in there that one, that one can see might work. And to cut a, you know, more elaborate story, uh, somewhat shorter, sometimes even in those, and I, in this paper that, I, that I've written elsewhere, I talk about District 9 as, as a kind of production, cinematic production of post-apartheid culture, 
where we see racist tropes reiterated, but also we see possibly a way of starting to think, even if somewhat unconsciously, about what it might mean for whiteness to come to an end, or a certain mode of privilege and dominance to come to an end. And those moments, which are very dangerous to, to circulate publicly and socially, given the context of contemporary America, I think, but there are potentially certain very productive moments in those fantasies, in those anxieties coming undone. Now, I'll stop because I haven't spoken anything about um, solidarity across different groups. Um, so maybe we'll get to that. But I suppose I just wanted to foreground anxiety, this coming undone thing, and, and, and this sense of, of what it might be for whiteness or various other modes of dominant subjectivity, political subjectivity, to start a little bit of the work of coming undone. Um, yeah. Okay, yeah, that's, that's helpful. So yeah, maybe we can hear Sheldon's thoughts and then also come back to this question of solidarity after. So I, I like a lot of what Derek said, and um, I think there are echoes of Derek's ideas in my thinking. I, yeah, I, at the heart of things, I would say that race is and racism, race and, race and racism are efforts to mask the fact of our lack. And so for me, Dealing with race and dealing with racism basically mean basically means confronting your lack, being in a place of discomfort where you recognize that um, you are not a full subject. Um, you recognize that you know difference is okay, um, and that that's hard to do. So part of the Part of the difficulty with Lacanian theory is that it's theory. And um, it's theory that in some ways is more for the clinic, you know, it's conceptualized more for the clinic than for the social. And so the, the big question is how do we move from what works in the clinic to what works socially? Um, and that's, that's a hard question, right? So I would say from a clinical perspective, what we want is this confrontation with lack. We want the thing, we want to confront the thing that unsettles us, the thing that, that um, scares us, the thing that produces some sense of anxiety as, as Derek is suggesting. And it's by moving past that thing um, that we get to a generative place, right? So one of the ways that I talk about this is through a Lacanian concept of the Ate, right? So Lacan talks about the Ate as the barrier to the real. And in, in his ethics seminar, he describes Jesus Christ as the Ate, as the image that lures us toward the beyond, but simultaneously bars our confrontation with what is in the beyond, with what we do not want to collapse with, with the real that would consume us. I would argue that race functions like this, Ati. Race is the barrier to the trauma of racism in the sense that, especially for African-Americans, Constructing a racial identity can be protective. It can create that sense of unity that you're talking about, that sense of political agency 
it can be a rallying force. But on the other hand, what it draws you to is a fantasy. And beyond that fantasy is a history of trauma, is a history of suffering. And so you remain bound to this, this barrier that is simultaneously a lure. And what ends up happening is that race creates a, a condition of stagnation in the subject. Right? So in describing Christianity and the image of Jesus Christ on the cross, um, um, Lacan says that Christianity has been crucifying man for centuries in the image of the crucifix. And what he means is that they've been bound to this thing that, that tells them what to believe, um, how to define themselves, I think race works in that same way. It tells us who we are, how we should act, who we should like, who should be our friends. And so from a clinical perspective, I would say that what the subject needs to do is move past this ate and get to the real, the real that is both historical for African-Americans a historical traumatic past that shapes their, their sense of identity, but also a real that is personal to them, right? A, a, a uniquely, um, um, they need to get to a desire that is not generated by race, a desire that is generated by their own lack. And that is what race prevents. So one of the ways that the, the book thinks about um, agency is through, actually through the concept of the Ate, which Molly um, Rothenberg um, describes in her chapter as an image that is drained of all jouissance. So the image of the crucifixion contains jouissance. It draws us to it because it says that beyond this thing, this, this, this alluring image is absolute jouissance, right? So race, race as Ate draws us to the beyond through a promise of wholeness. Um, but the Ate is something that is also atrocious. It's something that is horrific, like slavery. And so my argument would be that something like art, um, like novels written by African-Americans can take us to an image of that arte and drain it of some of its jouissance. So there we have um, art as a source of political agency. Um, but another way that we think of, um, we think of agency is through a coming together that doesn't rely upon, um, upon embodied difference, a coming together that relies upon lack. And I would suggest that the, the Black Lives Movement actually takes us some way in that direction. It's a movement that's not defined by a particular racial group coming together to act. Um, 
it's it, it's an international movement that isn't associated with an individual person, an individual leader. It's more it's more of a movement that thinks about a lack that binds us. And so all of that is to say that I think in the end, what Lacanian theory takes us to in terms of agency and in terms of political change is an embrace of lack. I think that's that's really great. And um, sort of silently in, in the Zoom chat, uh, Derek and I were both saying that some of this resonates as well, I think, with Todd McGowan's arguments about the idea of, uh, of, of coming together on the basis of our non-belonging. Right. Which is precisely what the LAC conference itself is about, um, that is organized by Todd and Hillary and, and others. It's about, you know, not um, centralizing specific figures or using name badges as, it's, as is common um, in conferences, but um, bringing us together around a concept of LAC. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, sorry, Sean, I just want, also wanted to just also stick to part of what you were saying before, because um, it seems so pertinent. Um, but one of the thoughts I'd had in, in response also to Jordan's question was like, how do we think the notion of castration socially and politically? I mean, this is treacherous ground because to pose any form of castration and, and let's before we go to the political, let's remember, you know, um, analysis terminable and interminable. Freud's like, well, there's the bedrock of castration. And no matter how many years I try to do this, the one thing that the neurotic subject does not want to hear, does not want to engage, is the fact of their castration. So let's yeah. take that seriously. Not simply as other people are having a problem with castration. You know, it's presumably we've all got a massive resistance uh, and, and presumably also quite an aggressive um, opposition to castration. But he says, you know, of course, what sometimes gets forgotten, not only does he emphasize the bedrock of castration, almost as something that psychoanalysis or a treatment can't go beyond, but he also suggests, well, there's two forms of it. And he speaks about this in relationship, obviously, to questions of sexuation. So, you know, there's nothing more impossible than, than getting the male subject to really confront the fact that they may lose it, this phallic attribute. Or, or, you know, in maybe somewhat problematic sexist terms, whatever, another category of subject that, um, that they should give up on the prospect of trying to gain this phallic attribute. So, you know, we could problematize that. But it just, it just reminded me of a couple of things. Like, number one, maybe castration is an important concept to think about the lack that, that, that Sheldon was, was, was speaking about. Number two, to pose that in a public forum about whiteness as such is, is gonna get a lot of bad responses. Um, number three, might there be small elements or moments within aesthetic modalities, which is what Sheldon is speaking to, which could pose the question of what it might mean to have some lack to confront that lack, to take on the lack, or indeed some form of castration without in, in incurring massive amounts of aggressive resistance. And I think the aesthetic domain would be useful. My, you know, I was talking about District 9, a movie. Um, and then also I'm wondering if there's small little tiny examples of that. And um, I, I once gave this example in a, in a presentation that Sheldon and I gave, and then I felt silly afterwards because it seemed so mundane and stupid. But like in retrospect, I think it's kind of a helpful one. So I spoke about growing up in what was then called Rhodesia, you know, which is now Zimbabwe, before going to apartheid South Africa. So I got this like history of white supremacist different exposures, you know, well done, Derek's parents, well done, Derek, but whatever. 
And one of the things that was so um, interesting about that experience was that you always used to have like a white news presenter. And, you know, like in terms of various cultural authorities, you expected it to be Ronald Reagan or, you know, like some white guy. And, you know, it was so, so odd being a four-year-old or something and, and growing up in this culture. And then suddenly there was a, as a black man reading the news. And, you know, I was like, what? I haven't seen this before. And it's a small little thing and it's a silly little thing. But I, I kind of wonder if there's bit by bit more instantiations of that, which seem to stage a little micro lack. Might that be helpful? at some level? I don't know. But the last comment I'll make about that is I'm always reminded Spike Lee said something and he said, um, you know, of the Trump era, and he said, we're paying now, and we're going to continue paying for the fact that Obama was president for eight years. And this, in a way, contrasts the argument that I've just made, because I don't know, that makes a lot of sense to me. It's almost like the pushback um, of seeing one little moment of change. And I, I, simultaneously, I think it was hugely important, obviously, that, you know, uh, Obama was a president, but also, you know, one could say, well, that didn't necessarily change a huge amount, but like, let's keep both of those things in play. But I think what I've learned is that castration is an important concept psychoanalytically, but maybe it's one to be wary of when we think about an extrapolation to the social realm, precisely because when there are moments of perceived castration or lack, pronounced lack for a certain part of the electorate, the pushback to that, the, the ongoing attack against those perceived moments of castration losses can, can be years and years in the making and, and can unleash something really more formidable than one, one would like to have confronted. But would it be fair to say then in, in, in all of what both of you are saying that you're, you're proposing something like one essential component of an anti-racist project is for participants to go through some kind of experience of Lacanian cure without going so far as to say everyone needs to undergo an analysis. Is that, is that kind of what you're getting at here? I think it's what I would suggest that, that, that there is something about the concept of a confrontation with lack that is um, in, I think that race and racism are inherently bound to notions of wholeness. And so the only way to move past notions of race and racism is at some level to confront and accept a notion of lack. Because what race does is it promises you that you can be whole, right? So how does that work, right? You have, you have a subject who race is ultimately a fantasy. It is a fantasy about, um, about uh, from a Lacanian perspective, it's a fantasy about the object A, right? It's the object A that is inserted in the other. There is something in the other that makes the other other to me, but the object A is also what unifies me as a member of a racial group. There's a notion that, you know, part of what's, what's hard for us to understand these days is how does race continue when we've come to a point where people doubt the existence of race, people doubt the existence of biological conceptions of race. But yet still, we feel that there is some sort of essence, some sort of essential difference between uh, between groups of people. 
and that essence it cannot be clearly articulated. Well, that's the fantasy object, right? That's the role of fantasy in certain some sort of essence in the other that makes it possible for me to say, I am like this other who is a member of my group, and I am unlike this other who is not a member of my group. And so um, that need to insert this object into the other is predicated on a sense of lack. So in, uh, in order to get, get past the object of race, the fantasy object of race, what has to be negotiated is a relationship to lack. Yeah, I just wanted to add something to that, Sheldon, if that's mm -hmm. okay. Um, I was thinking about, yeah, that's that's absolutely the case. I, I, from a Lacanian standpoint, I think you can't, you've got to centralize this, this notion of lack. Um, that's not a message that's going to go down well. And um, I, I was reminded also, I just started thinking of, of George Yancey, um, who's written a book called Backlash, which is all about the atrocious and horrific um, series of responses and death threats that he got to, to, to making a series of arguments um, in famously in a New York Times, letter to the New York Times, uh, you know, about whiteness in America. And in those moments, it made me think that, like, you know, sometimes we have this idea that the other scene is there, and here we have everyday social normative reality or something like that. But listening to him speak about some of the, the threatening letters, um, and he's done some, you know, conference presentations, and presumably it's in backlash as well, where he, he repeats this material. And it's so amazing that people are saying and, and, and terrifying the kinds of things that they're saying to him. In other words, the domain of the id, the other scene, is being enacted like within everyday social reality. Although, of course, you could say that those letters have a modicum of, you know, they're sent to him, they're not necessarily, but many of them are broadcast publicly, these kinds of pronouncements, massive, unreconstructed racism. So that's the one point. But I'm also going to segue back to Sheldon's thing about the aesthetic, the, the, the artistic domain. One of the problems in thinking about here's the clinic, here's about the social political uh, terrain, is the clinic should be a space unlike everyday societal interactions, right? And I mean, I'm always reminded of that. If you go to the Freud Museum and uh, you, know, you have this weird somnambulant dreamy space, I don't know how much was actually like that in Freud's life, but it's a nice exemplar of how the clinic can allow uh, a, a certain um, expression of, of fantasies, a jouissance, uh, of the unconscious, which is not so, is not necessarily contained in quite the same way in different situations. So presumably the move then to think, if one is going to, to broach seriously questions of, of lack, and interestingly, when Sheldon's talking about it, it's not just the whiteness lacking, right? I mean, it's if, if human beings within a domain of identity politics latch onto race uh, as, a, as, a, as a crucial marker of identity and subjectivity. So it's not, it's not just about a kind of whiteness lack necessarily. But what would be the modality, the form, the space for it? The aesthetic might be one, but presumably to jump with both boots into the middle of the social domain and, and, and say whiteness must be made to be lacking, you know, you, you risk a, a contagion of furious antagonism or something like that. So what are those spaces? The aesthetic is one. Um, I'm curious what you both think. Like, what, what are those modes within everyday social life where one can broach some of 
this uh, fluorescence of defensive anxiety, but in a way which allows it to have just a modicum of separation. I mean, and maybe that's the closest most of us ever get to confronting lack properly or, 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 or castration properly. You need it to be by definition in another space, maybe precisely like the aesthetic. So anyway, so I've taken us to a slightly different place, but um, it, it seems important because if we're thinking uh, Lacanian and psychoanalytic social theory, like what is the version of the clinic as the space set aside for Lacanian social theory? Mm-hmm. I, I wonder if, um, if we are not in a moment where some of this is being um, confronted socially because of the political upheaval we've seen um, as, um, you know, the the violence that we've seen um, towards Black men. And here I'm thinking in terms of George Floyd. Um, You know, I, I would suggest that part of what we see in that moment where we have someone um, being knelt on for over nine minutes is excess, right? It's, it's an excessive enjoyment that says something about the nation and um, the nation's relationship to enjoyment. Now, the optimistic view would be that that can make us sort of, um, you know, confront what I have been calling the Ate, right? It takes us past the barrier. It takes us into, into this excessive jouissance that we then say, you know, now that we've seen this, we know what the limit is. We know what the barrier should be. We know that this is the point that we cannot go past beyond this is where the atrocity lies, right? So the, the hopeful, um, optimistic view would be that something has changed for us, that we've confronted something about our psychic structure and the ways that we enjoy, and that um, um, there's something clinical happening there, right? There's a confrontation that hasn't been present before. But of course, you know, the more skeptical reading would be that this always happens and still happens and continues to happen despite the presence of video cameras. Yeah, I I think um, one of the ways that we, we thought of those video cameras when police first started using them was that, you know, we could finally see um, what police are doing, we could finally return the gaze of those, you know, the gaze to those who are in power and thereby disempower them. Um, but I'm not sure that that has really happened. Mm-hmm. This is just a very brief comment, and maybe it slightly counterbalances some of what, what Sheldon is suggesting, but you know, I, I just keep getting stuck on this attempt to ban critical race theory, which seems that even when we do find another area, like maybe it's very disturbing for whatever certain communities to think about the tenacity of anti-Blackness in your face all the time, maybe you know, one could do a little bit of this work by pointing to history, 
right? You know, I'm kind of thinking about what is a, like the clinic as a site, like somewhat a modicum of, of separation from whatever, the contemporary lived experience of things. So one could do that work with history, but of course the, the attempt to whole scale ban so-called critical race theory seems to shut down that. It, it's like people don't want even that history being spoken in American schools, which psychoanalytically is kind of like a, it's like the equivalent of a client saying, I'm coming to therapy. Well, it's not really because the client's not even coming to therapy, but like, I don't want to talk about the, we can, that is, we're not talking about the past. Can't talk about history, can't talk about whatever, um, which fundamentally disenables a certain kind of work to even begin, let alone to be progressed or worked through and so on and so forth. Mm. I mean, I suppose uh, one of the answers, I think, to your earlier question, Derek, this makes me think a bit about Todd McGowan's work on capitalism as well. And this touches on why I was asking a bit as well around the use of kind of white fragility in, in corporate halls of power and that kind of thing is um, perhaps what we're also seeing is, uh, I think, an increased recognition of um, a shared sense of being of, of capitalism presenting a kind of fantasy of fulfillment that is used in a way to perpetuate racist ideology. And that's kind of, I think, Todd's argument in, mm -hmm. in his book on universalism, um, which um, is maybe beginning to rupture in productive ways. So I'm thinking of certain examples in which class and race have been articulated together um, in quite helpful ways. Uh, such as um, I know part of the Black Lives Matter protests involved um, uh, unionized bus drivers refusing to take protesters to police, uh, to the police. Um, and so sort of trade unions playing a role uh, in, in kind of the Black Lives Matter movement in a kind of surprising way. Um, and uh, the defund the police movement, for example, linking the demand to defund the police to the demand to properly fund kind of you know, welfare, social services, healthcare, that kind of thing. So ways in which um, perhaps some of the um, some of the ways of confronting the ways in which we might see a confrontation with lack being experienced collectively through this kind of linking of class and race. Yeah, I mean, I suppose one uh, slightly pessimistic note is I'm always reminded, I think Stephen Frosch says this somewhere, he says, you know, someone speaks about the love of psychoanalysis. And he's like, well, how can you love psychoanalysis? Let's be honest, because it exacerbates your sense of splitness and, 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 and undermines your sense of, you know, some kind of uh, resolved, uh, uh, consistent subjectivity. And so I suppose, in a way, that also means that, that psychoanalysis as a theoretical system is pretty well placed to say things about racism. But unfortunately, in the same way that psychoanalysis is difficult ever to fully be, as it were, either socially comprehensible or socially palatable, what it has to say about racism, presumably, is also going to remain rather unpalatable pretty much forever, because it points to the lack, the splitness, the, the, the facets of ourselves that we are, where we're most vulnerable, that, that we don't want to, um, to speak, that we don't want to accede to existing as precisely the subject of lack, the lacking subject, um, who's always gravitating towards some kinds of jouissance. So sorry for the pessimism, but I, you know, I, I do think sometimes in these contexts, it's also quite important to underline the, the, the nature of the, the, the challenge. And um, this might help segue, I think, Jordan, you were interested in talking about Afro-pessimism um, and in, an, in, an, in a different way with Afro-pessimism's attempt to move the debate on what anti-Blackness is. 
And that's important. It's not just racism now. They want to focus precisely on anti-Blackness. That anti-Blackness exists at the level of political ontology, not merely at the level of psychic defenses and racism at a psychological level. Um, and so just to say, to, to, under, to underscore the nature of the severity of, of the difficulty ahead is, is also important, even if it sounds very pessimistic at some, at some point. Selden, mm. was there anything you wanted to add on that? Um, so I want to hold out hope. Now, this, you know, this, this may seem optimistic, but I, I think part of what we want to do is historicize racism and think about the differences in the ways that racism works across time. You know, there's a specific historical moment when um, racism and capitalism come together to produce something like slavery. Um, and it, race is a way of seeing difference. Um, that doesn't mean that, you know, the, the differences do exist at some level, but there's a sort of selective um, process in identifying race as the primary difference that has to be foregrounded in thinking about individuals. And I think, you know, thinking of it through a broader historical context gives some modicum of hope because there is a specific moment, for example, when, um, when difference stops being articulated um, in terms primarily of religion, for example, during the Crusades, and then makes a radical shift toward race where, um, you know, darkness wasn't where darkness had once been articulated in relation to the darkness of, um, of one's soul through religion, the darkness of the soul then gets transferred onto the blackness of someone's skin. So darkness and blackness become collapsed, right? Um, so there is a historical moment when this happens. And that at least I think you know, gives some iota of hope. I think clearly uh, race has been socially cathected over centuries. And so it is hard to move past race, but um, it is yet important, I think, for us to keep in mind that race is just one way of seeing. And it doesn't have to always necessarily be the primary way of seeing difference. So, so from, from, you know, one of the, um, the things that Derek had said in, in a previous interview that we did together is that racism comes before race. And, you know, that's a psychoanalytic reading that suggests that there is a psychic need to see difference but there isn't a psychic need to see racial difference specifically. Mm. Um, there, well, there's something, can I, sorry, John, I just want yeah, to, go ahead. There, there's something crucial in, in, in what Sheldon is saying. And I think it's to be succinct, 
I don't normally do that, but I'll try. Uh, one of Lacan's big contributions to psychoanalysis is to offer uh, a series of thoughts on temporality in psychoanalysis. Um, and one of those most crucial ones is to say, nachtraklikate, deferred action, repetition, all of these are crucial elements. Um, but crucially, I think, and you certainly see it in, um, uh, in, in his writings around 54, he's thinking about the future anterior. In other words, a psychoanalytic treatment is not simply going to be always looking backwards. There's interesting ability through the nachtraklikate afterwards deferred action thing such that one's history and prehistory can, as it were, be resituated. But there's also this quite crucial sense that a psychoanalytic treatment isn't mired in the history of what's gone before, but also should involve this almost Heideggerian reference to the future of what I will have been or what I will still am in the process of becoming to be. And I think that is something that would be kind of useful to bear in mind when we're thinking about these things. And, and Sheldon's just kind of cued me into thinking about that. It, in a way, it would be too libidinally satisfying to get stuck in the stasis of commiserating and complaining about how terrible things are without the perspective, Lacanian psychoanalytic and indeed clinical lesson that a treatment is also about unwriting the future, to use John Forrester's phrase. And what I mean by unwriting, unwriting the future, which is condemned to occur as a repetition of the past, unless there is some kind of shift. And part of the treatment should be presumably to, to enable and facilitate the circumstances that can make that future different to what it would otherwise be predestined to repeat what's gone before. Mm. Uh, on this point of temporality, you've both been very generous with your time and we're uh, running out of it. Um, so I think maybe Sheldon's note of an iota of hope is a good place to pause on. Um, before we go, uh, just the final question we always ask on the podcast is, um, what are you working on next? So perhaps uh, whether you two are working on another shared project or individual projects uh, you could tell us about. Well, Derek is much more busy than I am, and I'm sure he has a ton of projects in line. Someone had suggested that we do a follow-up to the book. Um, our follow-up so far has been conferences and bringing together the, um, the contributors with other people who are working um, in the area of race. So we don't have in mind at this moment um, a direct follow-up to the book. Um, but what I'm working on right now um, is an essay on Lacan's um, ethics seminar, um, which actually has some really interesting references, passing references to race. Um, and I'm, I'm thinking about the relationship of um, race to images of the body and lynching and stuff like that. Um, it should be a part of uh, Carol Owens's um, series on reading Lacan's seminars. And eventually um, another monograph on race, but that's a bit in the future. It's funny because I think Sheldon and I are both like, what is going to be the next shared project? And, and maybe a little exhausted, actually, from, from yes. the, the last one and, and the various conferences. I mean, inspired, and, and maybe this would just be a good opportunity to thank all of the people who've submitted work, who, who've contributed, who've taught us so much in terms of conferences, um, presentations um, around these topics of Black, on and Race. And, and I think there is 
an unspoken yet now kind of breaking unspoken pact between Sheldon and I that there will be something that we'll work on and collaborate in the future we haven't yet decided but just briefly also the the thing that I'm trying to find the time to work on is is, is a book that 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 overviews how um how different moments in for non-scholarship inclusive of moments in Afro-pessimism have made use of, of Lacan and also to go back to you know some of the early now published uh, psychiatric writings of Fanon to see how he very interestingly utilizes the younger psychiatrist Lacan in his own formulations and um, it's interesting territory because you know people are very dismissive or have been there's been a period in where Fanon scholars were very dismissive of Homi Baba and that kind of 1980s cultural studies uh, Lacanianization of, of Fanon. But if you put that to one side, there's, there's fascinating ways that, that Lacan um, appears in early Fanon, and also how certain facets in later Lacan become important resources for Fanonism. Just for example, like one way you could think about that is maybe in some respects you could even think about Afro-pessimism as doing a kind of theoretical version of Lacan's notion of subjective destitution. Another whole discussion, but that's that's just a, a, a rough sketch of some of the things that I'm trying to work on. Wow, well, these all sound like really interesting projects. And um, as always, it's so fascinating and delightful to speak with you both. So thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you, thank Jordan. You, Jordan.